Happy Thursday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie that Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston-directed feature, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And Jim, what a thrill it is to welcome back one of our earliest guests. This is uh, this is an extremely talented gentleman, a, uh, a scientist, a renaissance man, a, a raconteur, if you will, and, and you should. He's an Eisner Award-winning uh, graphic novelist. And in my world, he is living proof that if you stalk a celebrity long enough, you can become friends. <laughs> so welcome, welcome, uh, Brian Fees, who I always thought was Brian Fies until a few months ago. You know, I would think Billy Campbell would be enough evidence of uh, how, how stalking can pay off for you guys. Sometimes they stalk you. That's the best part. That's right. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to be back. I think I, I, I spoke in minute four and eight or something like that, but uh, it's been a lot something of minutes, like gentlemen. It was yep. back when we wore younger men's clothes. Yes. That's for sure. It's been quite a while now. <laughs> Ah, but we are, and we are, uh, have you, we have you back for a specific reason. We're going to talk about the world of animation. Well, it doesn't happen through this entire minute, but we, we get into it about halfway through. Brian, as you are one of the, you're one of the greatest cartoonists that we know, or I, one of the few I know. <laughs> the designer of our logo. You've written yeah. things like, uh, of course, uh, Mom's Cancer, which is powerful, powerful stuff. An unsung favorite of mine, uh, The Adventures of Old Time Traveling Brian, oh. and uh, uh, which I believe I have uh, like number two or three of, it's a of limited 45 edition. or 50. I, I only made 50 of them, and you've so, got uh, one of them. I sure do. And, uh, and of course, uh, one of my all-time favorite graphic novels, uh, it's, it's uh, basically, I think, a three- or four-way tie for first place for me in all seriousness, is Whatever Happened to the World of Tomorrow. We have, we've said it before. We'll say it again. If you haven't read it, uh, there's something wrong in your life, and, and uh, this book will, fall, will solve that. Or Thanks. Amazon will, at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazon will solve that for you. Yeah, so Amazon will be glad to help. Yeah. And That's why I have the one play. Also relevant to today's today's minute, I think, is I'm currently doing a webcomic on GoComics.com called The Last Mechanical Monster, which is of a, uh, a sequel of sorts to an old Fleischer Brothers Superman cartoon. And I think we're going to be touching on the Fleischer boys as we get into this minute here. For sure, yes. Uh, it is it is epic and easily found on GoComics.com. Uh, and it's it's interesting. Um, Hal and I both read it on its first go round in its in its draft stage. Now that it's it's in big time and full color and things, it's it's even enjoyable on on reviewing. So that that's one sign of of greatness is when you can look at something again and say, "Wow, this is fantastic." Oh, thank um, you. It's very very enjoyable. We are as we begin here. We're starting with uh, movie time. Uh, no popcorn apparently in Howard Hughes's office, but uh, I guess he didn't ask. It, so. But as we said yesterday, a projectionist on call. And yes. he's somewhere sort of he's somewhere like in the ceiling of the uh, of his office. He looks up and says, you know, go ahead and roll it. Like yeah. okay, sure you know, thing, Howard, Mr. I've been Hughes. waiting for months for this moment, yes. but uh, now it's time to earn my pay. Let's see. I, I open the screen, then I put her in the projector on. Yeah, long before PowerPoint there was. Yes. But we 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 get to watch a uh, a movie of some guy impersonating Hitler and some guy impersonating uh, well assor- assorted guys in uh, in Nazi uniforms looking at a man wearing a lot of cans and and pipes on his back. And right. that man happens to be the creator of the Rocketeer, Dave Stevens. And you get one good look at him in profile as this as the doors are still opening to reveal the screen and Herr Hitler is is looking at him and he's sort of standing at attention. 
and you've got a you've got a mix. I, I wish I were a better expert on the the German uniforms. I used to be much more up on this, but you've got sort of a mix. I see some Wehrmacht, a Luftwaffe, and maybe even a maybe even a Panzer officer, all of whom are interested in what's about to happen here. I like in that glimpse of Dave Stevens that you can see, you get enough of a look at his face to see how he modeled the Rocketeer character after himself yeah. and what good casting Billy Campbell was for that part. There, there really is a similarity. Yeah, there, there really is. Yeah. Billy said they could, you know, he thought they could be brothers and I could I could see that. And, it, you know, I think it, I just thought of this, but I think it works in the, in the context of the movie too because a, a Cliff Secord could be looking at this movie saying, well, there's a guy who could be me. Right. You yeah. Know? It's, it's quite, I mean, it's quite well done too. I mean, it has all the feelings of the 1930s newsreels and stuff. It, it has a homemade amateur nature. A couple of the, uh, uh, the Wehrmacht guys with, uh, with still cameras and stuff trying to record all this. It feels like if you watch the movies of the A4, which is later known as the V2, the uh, early V2 test, this is not that much different looking from that kind of footage. Um, but very, uh, very verisimilitude is that the word yeah johnson joe johnson really has that down pat he really does it's it's interesting too the design of this thing because it's all exposed tubes and everything else it is so very clearly a prototype and part of me says you know the germans would have had more style than that even with the prototype but it also says you know what they're in a hurry and as you said you know the early uh early a4 missiles early sort of v1 tests and things like that not that stuff wasn't necessarily all that uh all that refined until they really went into production. Well, I was I was impressed in this bit about the uh, the the blogglefarg that uh, Howard Hughes comes out to explain the problem he solved of the exploding uh, uh, jetpack. <laughs> you know, it it sounded it sounded right to me. I, I I'm Jim. You're more of a much more of a rocket scientist than me. But the idea of uh, I forget what he called it, but like a, a two-layered mixing chamber and all this. Right. It sounded like something they would have done for the Saturn V. Yeah, it, it, well, actually, it would have been that, that would have been resolved by reading the the writings of Robert Goddard, who came up with the idea of a a double-walled chamber, which technically is what the uh, the the thrust nozzle of a you know the, the reaction chamber of a of a rocket. Robert Goddard figured out that to, how to cool it is you run the fuel through it, and the fuel, of course, you know, basic physics, you can't get hotter than the than the the fuel's boiling point so it kind of it cools it as it goes and also uh charges the it, it speeds up the the rate of compression for the fuel that's going into the chamber so it it has a double purpose of reusing that energy to push uh, more fuel into a chamber the only thing that really bothers well it, it i don't I, I i haven't seen a schematic for the uh, the german version of the of the x3 cirrus but the thing that bothers me all the time looking at PV's drawings is there is no oxidation. There's, there's no there's no <laughs> oxidizer. It's like, we can push more fuel in. That doesn't matter if there's not enough air to, you know, make it cook. But yeah, it does It does sound good, that whole idea of a double-walled chamber, which, if you like you said, if you look at a, at a Saturn V or actually just about any uh, Type J1s or I, I can go through the list of H2s and things like that, but basically they all have the same design, the one that, uh, the one that Goddard used, the one that Von Braun used. You run fuel around the outside of a chamber, cooling it uh, while simultaneously uh, pressurizing the fuel that's going to be heading into the chamber. You know, I think about all the millions and millions of people who've seen this movie over the years, and I bet you're the only one who said it needs more <laughs> oxidizer. <laughs> Dave Stevens might have, though. Yeah. I, can, I can picture him going, wait a minute. He might have. But it's okay. It's 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 Disney, and it it seems to work in the movie. So I'm not gonna right. complain. <laughs> he, he's got it's it. It's right. fascinating too in the German design that uh, just before ignition, there's a there's a cut in the film, but there's an enlisted guy who comes up and like flips a switch, like arms the whole thing, 
and then sort of steps back in a hurry. So like the pilot doesn't even necessarily have have full control. And then is it is it just me that that uh, the rocket pack itself, or the the engine, looks like it's off center, which would really cause you even just a little bit. Looks mm. like it would cause you all kinds of problems. Well, luckily he didn't go very far. That's true. He did not. Yeah. Spoiler alert: a second after we're talking, he blows up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was just wondering if you know, if there is an oxidizer in any of those tanks, that the fuel and oxidizer might weigh different things. It's similar to <laughs> my 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 explanation for that is if you look at the lunar module. Yeah, that's uh, right. You'll notice you'll notice that the uh, the uh, the fuel and oxidizer tanks are different sizes. That's why uh, uh, <laughs> that's why it seems to have like a cyst on its cheek. That that whole <laughs> left hand side is because the difference in weight between fuel and oxidizer. Now, would that explain the sty in Jennifer Connelly's eye? At that point, was that the fuel mm. and oxidizer different sizes? There is just, no explaining just putting, Jennifer Connelly. Just, I got, just putting I think, that out there. I think she, yeah, she's she's beyond explanation as <laughs> as many as many young men can yes. say. Uh, Certainly beyond the capabilities of mortal men such as us. I, I just keep I keep looking at this thing like oh the flames are everywhere and uh, that w- that really wasn't much of a much of a flight but I was wondering who was the like the guy that's flying it is that that's not their chief engineer I I would think that they would have recruited you know perhaps against his will you know a, a test pilot for something like that although it, it depends you know Hannah Reich when she came along she was probably their most uh, the most famous German test pilot of World War II. And uh, she was somebody who would actually sort of volunteer and go after some of the more ridiculously dangerous assignments. I mean, she was the the first one to fly the, uh, as I understand, the first one to fly the Messerschmitt 163 comet and survive. Uh, She also was the only one to have ever survived uh, test flying the, uh, oh, the the Fiesler. It was basically the piloted version of the V1, the buzz bomb. They put a cockpit right. in it in front of the scramjet engine. I'm drawing a blank on the, something like the 203, something like that. And the idea was that you would uh, you would give a Hitler youth uh, 30 minutes of training and then put him in this thing and then <laughs> tell him, honestly, you can totally bail out at the last minute before this thing dives in and explodes. And of course, it was a you know it was a suicide weapon in, in everything but uh, but name. But she actually flew those and successfully landed them or successfully. Uh, parachuted out of them whereas in every other test pilot who tried to get out of those things just didn't make it and one ended up uh, ended up dying and they weren't really employed kind of picking up on that uh the fellow you were talking about yesterday uh in the glider that had decided to put a 10 year old in and if a 10 year old oh george cayley uh, yeah back in the yes. yeah <laughs> yes he had the uh that was i think his chauffeur's son or something like that it's like you you're small <laughs> here you go kid <laughs> you old peasant Pull on this. Hold yes. steady. Quite a long history of that. So they're putting it all out, and then of course they have. Uh, is that a colonel that's coming up? I don't. I I'm not good at uh, Nazi rank, but I <laughs> that's think that's your those, credit, Jim. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I don't think anybody's going to complain. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, I, I think yeah. I, I can tell Doctor McCoy on patterns of force. That's about <laughs> the only yeah. only one like, and he was made a colonel too. There we go. So yeah, it's there. Uh, you I, go. He uh, looks like an, an oberst, as they say. Oberst. Yeah, there we are. So he blots it out, and we're replaced by whatever the German equivalent of the Semti code is. For, yes. Uh, Sieben, sechs, fünf, vier. <laughs> that German paid off in high school. Uh, yes, it did. 
So we get, that was our, our initial. So they did have, this is just like going to the movies. They have the newsreel and then they have the main feature or the the, car, the cartoon afterwards. Here comes the cartoon, yeah. yeah. And, uh, the sunny, delightful little cartoon that it is. Yeah. And opens with those big, bold words, I know you're Anfang, a new beginning or a new dawn with the, the clouds and the sun behind it. Yeah. Just the aging on the film print is so well done. Everything about this, everything about this everything animation. Everything about this. Is, everything about this is beautiful. It's it's period or fake period. Right. And it's just uh, somebody, uh, do you know the name of the animator yes uh, it's dindle dindle or uh drindle D- dindle 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 yeah and uh and we have tried to the, find him and we have not succeeded he taught a, he, the, they did a wonderful job yeah the multiplane this is just beautiful the, the multiplane right. there with the uh yep. you have the background of many uh flying commandos the works there and uh and then we get the, <laughs> the works the, the foreground uh slowly moving up beautiful uh, oh, parallax man. that brought yeah. back happy memories of my uh my brief stint in film and video production as a minor in college, and I built my own multiplayer camera and I, I, I rig, and it was it was like out of a broken window and some coat hangers and things. <laughs> but trying to do this crude little stop motion animation and add just a depth of field to it by having, you know, some things up on the glass and then a background on the table below it shooting oh. straight down. And... One thing that was interesting to me watching this fresh now in 2017 was was. I found myself thinking, well, you could do that easily in Photoshop. And no, of course they didn't. They didn't do any of this. They used right. probably the same multiplane technology that Disney used in Snow White, yeah. yep. if not literally the same cameras. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've seen these cameras in person. They're amazing pieces of technology. And maybe, I don't know if listeners know what, even what we're talking about, this multiplane technology, but it's the idea of it in, in an animated film. And I think... Disney first did it in Snow White. I think yeah. that's what he developed the camera for. Is is you get this depth of field of of a foreground, mid range, background. Uh, the focus can be different in the foreground and the background, and you can move into the into the picture with with real depth, with with a real effect of depth that that other you know you, you can't just get from a two D drawing. Yeah, it, it it is. But stunning. these these cameras are monsters. They're two stories, three stories tall, and you put different cells of the animation on different levels, like one at ground level, one three feet higher than that, one six feet higher than that, and you can literally zoom the camera down into it, or or pan the camera down into through these uh, through these planes of cells. Get the most amazing effects. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's like a really big Jenga. You just can move stuff in and out in between, and, and you can have the different actions happening at different depths uh, and, and stunning work that we're, that we're seeing here present. I don't remember if Mr. Dindle was a Disney animator, but I believe he was. We we did try to reach out to him. He's a uh, right. he, he's a summer professor at USC, but unfortunately he he was, he was doing things in the summer while we couldn't get a hold of him. So maybe maybe we'll catch him before the end of the the end of the show, or one of his students is listening and say, "Hey, wait, I know Professor Dindle. I can ask him to come on." So. Because this is just absolutely uh, absolutely spot on. And uh, Brian, it's funny you mentioned Snow White because one of the things that I unearthed in uh, thinking about tonight's uh, or today's episode rather was that. Uh, Right about this time, so starting like right at the end of 1937 and then into 1938, so about the time the film is taking place, uh, Goebbels was uh, trying desperately to to get the rights to screen Snow White in Germany, and he was oh, wow. facing a real uh, a real struggle with it because of you know just political tensions and 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 things like that that were mounting. But Snow White, of course, uh, based on a Germanic folktale. And so these guys were were big fans of the form and thought this is a nice sort of pro pro German thing, and and wanted to screen it. As far as I recall, I don't 
think they ever did. They may have, but I know if nothing else, Goebbels was trying for a while. And that's, it's got to be something unsettling when, when Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister, when he's a fan of your work, do you, <laughs> what do you do at that point? Do you stop and say, you know, is it, is it me? Is it, it's uh, like, hmm. that's good. I'm going to look at my work through a new lens and just sort of recalibrate here for a moment. Interesting. I, I hadn't heard the, that. The one thing that bothers me on this thing, and I understand it's part of telling the story, but I don't think the Nazis didn't think of themselves as the bad guys. So I don't think they would have used that kind of music in this particular. It, it would have been more of a, uh, um, I want to say uplifting, but a more triumphant sound. This is a little more Wagner. Yeah, this is. Yeah, you listen to something like Entry of the Gods into Valhalla from uh, from the Ring series, something like that, that there there would be. It still sounds sinister, yeah. But it's a it's a triumphant sinister. Yeah, this is this is more so, night and bald mountain kind of a right. thing, and just exactly. Uh, um, I don't know if either of you guys have ever come across a, a British sketch comedy show called That Mitchell and Webb. Yes, book. yes. I was yes. thinking the exact okay. same thing. Okay, so there's a wonderful sketch where they've got these SF officers sitting around, and, and one of them just suddenly gets introspective. as World War II SS guy. And he said, yep. Do you think we're the baddies? Do you think we're the baddies? Yes, he's got we, these we, skulls. We have skulls. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we have skulls on our hats. <laughs> it is oh it's so well done and and there's a yeah. group with a wonderful attention to detail too because those every inch of those uniforms is absolutely spot on huh. and uh you know it helps sell the sketch if you just sort of put you know quick costumes on it wouldn't be nearly as funny as something that looks spot on authentic huh. so yeah. and their uh their segment with uh with uh admiral Dernitz as the new fuhrer after Hitler has committed suicide, none of that should be funny, but it is hilarious what they uh, what they do with it. And his his five minutes is Hitler, where he find he discovers to his chagrin that his only job is uh, to call Eisenhower and surrender. <laughs> and I see you're giving your your podcast listeners homework. Yeah, they're all going to be looking up exactly. Dernitz, and there we go. Yes, uh, Dernitz well, and Goebbels, and well, we're <laughs> let me. We're Oh, my, my question was going to you, Brian. So this, this may be up your alley as, as we're talking, but uh, as we're watching the multiplane uh, uh, Nazi commandos flying across the Atlantic and they're in all their multi, multi-plane uh, glory, um, at the time, this is late 30s, uh, which goes into the early 40s, and we were discussing at the very beginning of the show uh, the Fleischer brothers who uh, kind of pioneered making uh, rotoscoped movies. And we might want to talk about rotoscoping, but also this this general look of, this brilliant uh, artwork uh, in a in a theater. Can we talk a little about Fleischer Brothers and Paramount and things? You know exactly where I was going. Awesome, Joe. thanks. But I, you talk about the the technological innovation of Disney, but uh, the the Fleischer Studios, Max and Dave Fleischer, were doing amazing, amazingly innovative animation in uh, much earlier than Disney. Uh, well, I don't know in in the 30s and 40s, uh, which was also the time Disney was working. But they were doing amazing stuff that some of which survived and some of which didn't. Now, the Fleischer Studios did Coco the Clown, uh, they did Betty Boop, they did Popeye, and they did uh, some a series of 17 Superman cartoons, which inspired me to do my webcomic, and I think probably inspired the makers of this Rocketeer insert as well. There's just some amazing stuff in here that looks like it was taken right out of some of the Fleischer cartoons in terms of just the, the lighting, the uh, the figure work, some amazing stuff, but the Fleischer Studios were were tremendously innovative. They kept trying different ways of telling these stories. Uh, one of my favorite examples is it's sort of like the multiplane camera, except they would photograph, they would make a model of say a town and a landscape, and put it on a giant turntable. I, I don't know, a six eight foot diameter turntable, 
and spin it and photograph it and then use the photographs as the background for their animation so that as the characters are walking down a road or driving in a car you'd see this 3d model you know going behind them as if as if they were going down the road it's it's a weird effect i don't think anybody else ever did it since but it's just beautiful and clever and you know kudos to them for even trying something like that it couldn't have been it must have been incredibly expensive to do things like that yeah, it, it, it's stunning that, and and you're thinking that they're they're shooting this from from 16 to 24 frames a second. I don't think they ever got up to 24, but the the the, the amount of artwork that they had to do just to get out a, a four to 11 minute movie, it, it, it's astonishing how much work went into these things. Uh, one of the scenes that we're watching in this is the uh, uh, the United States flag in flames falling, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of complicated uh, fluid motion of the of the flag twisting and, and turning. And I think this is giving us a, a short, maybe a two second example of a, a technique called rotoscoping, where you take an- I think it must yeah. be rotoscoping. Yeah. so yeah. fluid. You, what you do is you take an actual it, – it's very difficult to animate these things by hand unless you're really good at physics. Uh, and – or, you know, I mean, and we're, there were there were cartoonists that knew how to do this thing, um, these things. Uh, Robert McKimson is one of them. But the um, this particular one, what happens is they shoot an actual picture of a waving flag. You put it in wind. You film it in slow motion. Take the actual photo, photographs together, the individual frames. You blow them up into stills, put a, put a sheet of acetate over them, and trace it. And once you trace it, then you paint it and uh, photograph it in your anima- on your animation stand and turn that photograph into a moving cartoon image. This is known as rotoscoping, as you're just rot- rotoring, I mean, making marks. You're, uh, you're making marks on, a, on an acetate sheet uh, to create an image. And uh, this, you know, this is a, a fine example of it. I'm assuming it's not a, it's a little too early for computers. It's 1991, and I think that that's they just did this by hand. I agree. It must be rotoscoping, and it is well done. It's it's a technique that was real common in from the very earliest days of animation. One of the very first animators of my my all time favorite comic strip artist, Windsor McKay, did rotoscoping. He he did uh, he did a comic character called Little Nemo for the comic strips great big beautiful comic strips in the paper well he made a an animated film of little nemo and to make it he shot a movie of a, of a boy in costume exactly as you describe the boy comes out on stage he does a little dance he gives a nice bow and windsor mckay took each frame of that movie traced it onto at the time paper he didn't use uh, acetate they didn't use the transparent acetate he tried he traced each frame of uh, film onto a piece of rice paper put those all together and you've got a an uncannily accurate cartoon of a little boy coming out on stage and dancing and bowing disney rotoscoped as well you know there's some famous scenes like i the, the first one that comes to mind is uh when snow white is dancing with the dwarves and she does a really nice little little jig with the dwarves that was that was a lot of rotoscoping uh they had a they put an actress on a sound stage with with some short people and they had her dance around, and they essentially traced drawings of the film of her dancing. Now, what, what Disney discovered, as I understand it, is that if you just trace the photographs of a figure in motion, it looks stiff and unnatural. So you have to take the film and use it as a reference, but exaggerate it and animate it and make it just slightly unreal to make it look real. It, it's an interesting thing. You, it, it's not as simple as just shooting something and tracing the pictures. If you do that, it doesn't look good. That's really interesting because with when you watch the Fleischer Superman stuff, like, you know, you started with, with uh, as your prequel to The Last Mechanical Monster. Yeah. 
you just know immediately, even if you don't know anything about the techniques that went into it, I mean, it was at least aware of rotoscoping and things like this, you instantly see that this is a very different form of animation. There's so there's a fluidity to it, and but it, it sticks with you somehow. It jumps out as immediately this is different from what you're used to seeing, you know, from that era or any other. Well, I love these Fleischer uh, Superman cartoons, all 17 of them. And they, they had a big influence on Dave Stevens when he was creating The Rocketeer. And they had some influence that's very evident to me in this, this film within The Rocketeer. But the, my favorite story about the Fleischer Superman cartoons is... It, we're talking 1939. Superman had really just come out, and apparently had become a pretty immediate hit. Paramount Studios wants to make Superman cartoons. They go to Fleischer Studios, and Fleischer's not interested in making Superman cartoons. So they quote Paramount a ridiculous price, like $100,000 an episode, which in 1939-40 was like a, a $2 million. Just a ridiculous price. And Paramount says, Paramount says, okay, go ahead. Wow. So now Fleischer's stuck. <laughs> They've got a they, they've got this job that they didn't want in the first place, but they've got a budget of you know tens of thousands of dollars, and they just said, all right, let's go for it. Let's make the prettiest cartoons we can. These are seven eight minute shorts that were shown theatrically before movies, and they are still to this day recognized as some of the most beautiful animation ever done. You see a lot of their influence on if if you're familiar with Batman the Animated Series and Superman the Animated Series, particularly the Batman series though that came out in the '90s oh, sure. with Paul Dini and uh, Bruce Timm. Man, that's just uh, lifted yeah. straight out of those Superman cartoons from the from 1940, 41, 42. And as we're uh, recording this, uh, they've actually just released another film in in that style and in that in that universe. The uh, Batman and Harley Quinn animated picture has just come out. It's Paul Dini, and it it very much goes right back to that animated series of the '90s, which, which to me might as well have been from the '30s or '40s. It's yeah, it's beautiful, and all that work comes straight out of what the Flashers were doing in 1940. It it, it is amazing, and it, it, there's been recent uh, reconstructions of the original Paramount prints. So seeing them now, you can see them in all their original Technicolor glory. The the, the the saturation of colors is fantastic. The whole palette, we've talked about this before, Brian, but our, most of our views on color of good and evil and things like that comes from those Fleischer cartoons expanding on the you know the original work by, uh, by Joe Siegel and, and getting you know the, the, the primaries for, uh, for Superman and for, for Lois and stuff like that and the bad guys wearing you know the secondary colors. It's fantastic seeing it now. and it, I mean we're fortunate to live in an age where you can restore films back to their you know, near original quality. Yeah, Warner Brothers recently remastered, digitally remastered them, probably better than original quality, frankly, if you think about what a print would have gone through showing up in a theater in 1940-41. So they're, they're remastered, they're available on YouTube, and they are public domain. Superman isn't public domain, but these cartoons are, so for a long time you could find really bad prints of them in the dollar bin at Walmart. But now they're beautiful, and, and frankly, or, or honestly, that's why I could get away with doing a sequel to the cartoon with my webcomic. My webcomic doesn't have Superman or Lois Lane or the Daily Planet in it, but it has uh, it has characters from these car- cartoons in it because these cartoons fell in the public domain. They're beautiful. Look them up. Wow. Very very much Absolutely. worth a look. Yeah, did did they just like forget to fill out a form or something or how did any any idea how they how they fell through? Well, Fleischer yeah, copyright law has changed a lot since the first half of the 20th century and it used to be something you would have to renew. And the Fleischer studios fell apart in the 40s and there was as i understand it i uh, may be off base on this but as i understand it, there was no legal entity that continued to look after their properties so things like superman coco the clown betty boop 
not Popeye because Popeye had other owners, but these these uh, maybe Bed Boop too. But a lot of these characters, a lot of these films that the Fleischer brothers made in the 30s and 40s just fell in the public domain sometime in the mid 50s. So when we were all growing up, the three of us are all about the same age. These are the kind of cartoons you'd see at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning on the UHF channel, <laughs> on channel 36. Right. This is what you'd be watching. Yeah. Because they cost the TV stations right. nothing to, yeah. to acquire. Wow. Right. Now, for me in San Francisco, it was channel 44, but otherwise, yes, exactly. Yeah, back in New Jersey, it was channel 11 for me. It was <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the, it, it, I keep thinking that also explains a lot of why so many of these characters appear at the very end of uh, Roger Rabbit, because there, there's no oh, nobody yeah. there to pick up a paycheck for the uh, residuals. Yes. Yep. The whole smile, darn yeah, yeah. smile uh, scene there with the trees and. Uh, but the, 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 I, we're ta- we're talking. We're here to talk about the Rocketeer, not the Superman. Yeah, that's cartoons. true. But that's I gotta true. say, um, pl- look up the Superman cartoons. So much, so much was invented. The Superman flew for the first time in the Fleischer cartoons. He didn't fly in the comic books until the Fleischer brothers made a comic or a, a cartoon of him flying because they thought he looked oh, stupid right. jumping. You know, so so they made him fly. And the comic book people said, "All right, uh, the Fleischer cartoons are the first time Superman changes costume in a phone booth." Yeah, you know, all, all these things that we sort of associate with the iconography of Superman came right out of these seventeen cartoons. So it's a, they're a lot of fun to watch. No, oh, it, it it is stunning and well well worth anybody's time. I, I one of the things that. Uh, Another offshoot of this uh, reminds me of uh, Sky Captain: The World of Tomorrow, which was an interesting, uh, oh, an sure. interesting variation on uh, on these mechanical monsters that that are from the Fleischers that you've that you've uh, riffed on basically. So it was, it was an right. interesting, different riff there. Yeah, well, and so does but, this Rocketeer movie, by the way. The the yeah. film within the film, when you have these armies, these squadrons of Rocketeers flying uh, through the the Germanic sunset toward New York, that's that's a Fleischer image. That's the Fleischers' mechanical monsters. Uh, storming, storming the city, which was also what you saw in Sky Captain: The World of Tomorrow. Sky Captain: The World of Tomorrow was a very right. pointed and deliberate homage to these Fleischer cartoons. And you know, Jim, I would do that podcast. I would do the, the Sky Captain Minute. I think that would be an interesting one. <laughs> I think that that movie is about a hundred and sixty minutes long. Okay. So I, don't... <laughs> I didn't say I was going to do it tonight. <laughs> I, I just, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, I might, I might meet you at the, I might meet yeah. you on the other side. I'll come <laughs> up in the credits if you want to get to the, uh, the the lens cap part. I'll, uh, I'll lens get cap. there. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Oops, spoilers, never mind. Yes. Uh, one of the things that I wonder about when I watch this is who's the audience? Who are they going to show this to? Are they showing this to the German citizenry? Is this for the army? Or who do you think the audience? I, I wondered that too. You know, they make the comment, Howard Hughes says, a, a man died to get this out of Germany. And, and yet it looks like something that would have been shown before a yeah. Saturday matinee. So uh, I guess they were, you know, they were promising something that didn't exist yet. That's why, you know, they wanted to get their hands on the X3. But yeah, it, it, I don't understand. Or maybe they just were talking about the first part of this. Or No, I'm sorry. It was, it was when the animation started, a man died. I don't know. It's all a mystery. But it helped tell the story, and uh, and we'll we'll be seeing we'll be seeing the the end of this tomorrow. Um, uh, Brian won't be with us, but Brian, thank you so much for being with us on this part. It's uh, it's always great talking with you and having you. You are you are one of the creators of this show. At least you you did bring Hal and me together to uh, to chat for endless half hours. So it's my. <laughs> One of my proudest moments. And it'll live on forever and ever. So uh, please, if, if you are interested in Brian Fees' work, and I don't know why you wouldn't be interested in him because he talks about all parts of, of human nature and, uh, and technology and science, uh, check out Amazon. Just type in Brian Fees in the uh, search bar, and a pile of stuff will come up in there, the things that you need to catch up on. So uh, check that out, please. And, or check Go Comics, and you can read some of, some of his later stuff right there for free every day and, and comment on it. There's even commentary. 
I have to say as well, I, when uh, my dad was suffering from a mesothelioma uh, type of cancer, uh, I had read, I had just gotten a copy of your book when he had been diagnosed, and the parallels in it, I guess, with anybody facing a major disease, and I think not just cancer, but any kind of a major life-threatening disease, you can find there's so much in there about family dynamics, um, mixed emotions, dealing with uh, medical professionals, uh, how medical professionals have to deal with families. Um, there's so many aspects of that that uh, I'm sure you I'm sure you must get letters all the time from from people who have found their parts of their own life in your book. Yeah, what people say is it's it's you know, the details are all different, but it's like you were in our living room watching us, and that's uh, about the best compliment you can get. And I I really appreciate you you saying that. You know I've I've done other work, and I hope to do more work. But if I never did anything except mom's cancer, I could be very very content with that. I think that's. Uh, you know, that's, I'm well, proud of that well, you, did, you do good work. <laughs> and th- thanks for Thank sharing you. with us. Um, well, anyway, let, let, we'll, we'll get back to more uh, cartoon Nazis tomorrow uh, <laughs> here, here <laughs> on, uh, uh, but yeah, we, we will, uh, we'll talk about this. If you, if you all would like to talk about this uh, to us, we are available on many uh, social media things. Oh, by the way, there, there is a, I'm getting a lot of mail and we have misidentified uh, one of Eddie Valentine's henchmen. We've been saying it's Mike when actually it's Rusty. And yes, we know we we know it's it's Mike and it's Rusty and not Mike. Uh, so uh, just just <laughs> let you know, we do read your mail, and you can you can tell us. And we may since some of these are recorded out of order, we may say Mike again when we actually mean Rusty. So listen for Mike, but but hear Rusty. <laughs> uh, but, but we know, but, and we know that you you. You share these things with us because you love the show. So, so thank you very much for your attentiveness and listening to our failures. My my grandmother used to say, even the Pope has an eraser on his pencil. So there you go. Um, <laughs> so, we, uh, but you can you can reach out to us kindly at uh, at all the different social media. Find us on Twitter, Rocketeer Minute. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Rocketeer Minute. Find us on the big site, rocketeerminute.com. Uh, where you can read all these previous episodes, uh, go buy cool swag like Brian's books uh, from Amazon, and uh, find out about things that we're doing in the future. Uh, one of which is, by the way, if you're not doing anything uh, next, or if, if you're listening to this on on time and not in the distant past, uh, join us August twenty August 26th, Saturday, uh, 2017, in Chicago, where we'll be part of the Movies by Minutes Chicago group. Actually, go to movies, movies by Minutes slash movies excuse me i'll try this again movies by minutes.com slash chicago and get tickets and more information in any case please join us here uh, tomorrow as we uh, talk a little bit more about nazi cartoons here on the rocketeer minute so until next time over and out